Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have all of you with us once again. And with me are um, my loyal co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. We have a terrific discussion ahead. Elliot, let's start with you. Great. Thank you so much, John. Um, So today, right, this podcast is going to be released exactly one year after what I believe was the bottom of the 2020 bear market. And I thought it would be a timely opportunity to revisit last year, both in terms of some of the stuff that happened in markets and some of the things that I and we were thinking about at that time and reflect on both how much things have changed and how much they haven't changed, how far we've come, and you know, maybe perhaps add some perspective to where things may or may not go from here. Um, so March 9th, 2020, last year, uh, was when the S&P hit the 20% drawdown mark, which made it the first bear market uh, following the great financial crisis bottom. It was 11 years to the day, I believe, from the bottom of the GFC. And that day, the S&P dropped 7.79%. It was basically the fastest bear market ever. None had gone from peak to down 20% in that short a period. This was 17 days from peak to minus 20%. I think the next swiftest had been more than twice as many days from peak to minus 20. Then, you know, in some ways, the craziness was only beginning because, you know, what I was talking about was March 9th. March 12th was down minus 9.99% on the Dow. March 16th was minus 12.93% on the Dow. And I'm sorry I switched from S&P to Dow, but you know I want to make a point contextually on the relevance to, to something much bigger. These were two of the 10 largest point losses in the history of the Dow. And they happened you know, four days apart in the middle of March. And then that first instance of March 9th, if you put that in, that was the 11th worst percent loss in the Dow. So three of the 11 worst percent loss days in the Dow happened in, you know, basically a uh, one week span. Um, in the middle, we also had some record up days. So a couple of the, the largest up days ever. Uh, March 13th was up 9.36%. March 24th was up 11.4%. April 6th was a plus 7.7% day. During all that time period, the entire treasury curve out to 30 years was under 1%. So as we sit here today and see the treasury curve, you know, hit its highest uh, level since I think it was November of 2019, we're upwards of 2% today. You know, some things have changed and come a long way. Um, Since World War II, stocks have a bear market once every six years. If we go back 100 years, you have one every three and a half years. So, you know, depending on what you want to measure from, we're we're basically, we're we're nearing, um, you know, one year into a bull market. 
but interestingly, the typical bear market lasts 367 days. So, you know, we're doing this one year after when we became a bear market. And so obviously, by uh, virtue of that reality, we came out of the bear market much, much faster than is normal. So uh, March 20 was the bottom. And by by the first week of April, we were over 20% off lows, which I guess in this bull versus bear categorization meant we were once again in a bull market, you know, within a month of having been a bear market. And by the middle of August, the S&P had surpassed its uh, pre-COVID highs. Um, so, you know, to contextualize the actual, like what happened and what's going on with the economy, like in the very beginning, I personally thought, you know, perhaps this would look like a general strike or a natural disaster on the economy. I thought we'd, you know, take one month of hard medicine and then, you know, reopen within one to two months and get back on our merry way. Uh, but, you know, pretty quickly, by the time I wrote my end of quarter letter, that was like an interim letter in March. By the time I wrote my end of quarter letter, which was uh, earlier in April, you know, I was pretty convinced we were going to have a bit of pain for a while. I, you know, basically perceived it to be somewhat indefinite on how long uh, the situation would last, but said it would be, you know, a, a prolonged period of uh, economic hardship that would require a bridging of the gap was the phrase I used. So you would need three things, a constructive way for debtors and renters with their landlords and creditors to find a way and build amnesty with responsibility, you know, a little bit of both. Um, then you would need a federal stimulus to close uh, gaping holes in wallets and balance sheets. And last, you'd need decisive and extremely strong Fed action to provide grease into like gears that had been ground to a halt. And so, you know, the uh, policymakers truly did deliver in a really big way, because as we sit here today, you could say, well, by and large, we have avoided, you know, economic catastrophe. Now, some might say we opened up different kinds of economic cans of worms, but that remains to be seen. Uh, You know, by and large, providing that bridge, though, was crucial in keeping things relatively organized and calm, uh, helping provide a backdrop that, you know, got us a vaccine and a light at the end of the tunnel. And I just wanted to revisit, I had 10 predictions of what the other side would look like. Um, Other side being, you know, when that bridge got us to normalcy. And I I, I wanted to share these 10 things. Uh, Focus on hygiene, a move from cities to burbs, car buying, experiential spend resuming at a big rate over uh, things spend, content viewing accelerating into CTV, buy online, pick up in store, becoming the way brick and mortars maintain relevance, contactless payment instead of using our credit cards, infusing tech into education, work from home tools and telemedicine, uh, biotech coming through in a big way. And oh my God, did they come through, you know, much faster and better than I expected. Uh, you know, I definitely didn't think we'd be all uh, planning vaccines uh, one year hence. And then leaders stepping aside for a new generation, though in some ways, you know, in, in many respects that happened a lot early in the COVID period, but is, you know, it, to an extent waned ever since. Um, and then I had three things that I thought wouldn't change, which is travel won't go away. People really want to travel. And we're starting to see signs that, you know, I, I saw interesting stats on states where vaccination rates are really uh, going well, uh, forward travel planning has has truly accelerated. 
felt events would resume in a big way once this is all done. Uh, see some, I guess, enthusiasm in the market about that with Live Nation. Never expected to see that stock at record highs without concerts back up and running. And, you know, I, I maintain this one too. Work from home won't be permanent. People want an office and get back to it. But things would be new. Things would be different. Um, but, you know, one way or another, I, at the time, said within two years, life would go back to normal. Um, but, you know, glad to say that time frame looks a little accelerated from here. So, you know, let's open it up. I want to hear uh, you guys, you know, muse about where things were, where they are now, and what might happen next. Yeah, it's pretty interesting to think it's been a year, right? I feel like I've aged in dog years over the last 12 months. So it's it's amazing to sit back. I did some of this kind of thinking at the end of the year. And as it pertains to the markets, I guess, I mean, I was going through a lot around this time last year. Um, and, and I guess if you look back at just broader market behavior, I think anybody that looks back and doesn't have a list of things they said at the time that they can screenshot or timestamp, um, you know, I'm just going to kind of call BS on that because I think there's so much fantasy just baked into people's memories about what they were thinking, how they were responding, how panicked or optimistic they were, all that kind of stuff. I think it's it's really hard to look back and remember exactly how you felt. I mean, people's memories are just notoriously deceptive in this sort of environment. And, and so, look, I think one thing that does stand out to me, though, that I'll never forget about last year was even on the way down, right? So in the, some of those days that you just mentioned, Elliot, where um, you're right, I think it was the, the quickest ever uh, 20% drop from an all-time high. It was also the quickest ever peak to trough, you know, regaining a new all-time high. Um, it was certainly a whipsawed market in lots of different ways. But even on the way down in some of those crazy, crazy days in the middle of March there where you were just revisiting you know, not just the flash crash, but some of those end of days type feeling from 2007, 2008 into 2009, um, I was getting an inordinate amount of questions, phone calls, emails, texts from random people who were not only just not professional investors, but kind of the opposite of a, of a professional investor. I mean, I was getting questions like, again, because people knew and I'd spoken publicly about the airlines, as the world was kind of cratering around them, when should I buy the airlines? Or I was getting text messages. I just looked this up the other day because I hadn't talked to the person since. You know, a pretty well-off guy who had made money in a different field was texting me and saying, I'm going to buy Disney as soon as they close all the parks because that has to be the bottom. And just this kind of bizarre first-level thinking that was just, I mean, it was almost like they were pre-priming themselves to buy the dip, so to speak. And so... Look, I think the stimulus money that's come in, the boredom effect, um, the rise in, in the savings rate, personal incomes, the lack of sports to gamble on for a time there, I, that all played an effect. But for whatever reason, I just remember thinking, and I, again, I'm, I'm not smart enough to have done anything about it, unfortunately, but I remember thinking that the, 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 the zeitgeist seemed just primed for speculation. Do you guys remember feeling that or thinking that at the time? It's funny now that you mention it, I absolutely had those far and wide people reach out to me like, what should I be buying? What should my yeah. buy list be like? And, you know, perhaps that was like the ultimate telltale sign of what was to come next with Robin. Yeah, it was. It was, right? I mean, look, in, in 2007 and 2008, I was getting people calling me and saying, hey, I have, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in a bank and it's like Bank of America or something or JP Morgan, I, you know, should I take it out of the bank? 
right? Like panic stuff like that. And then this time around, it was like, oh, what, what speculative, you know, residual security should I be buying? Right. Just really bizarre how those two narratives came to dominate at different times. But at the same time, I do know a couple people who, you know, near a retirement age, took all their savings and went to cash. Hmm. Um, so I, I do have anecdotes on the other side of the ledger, but there definitely were some interesting cases of people, you know, in, in the far more speculative mindset. Yeah, it was just, it, it stuck out to me for sure at the time that it was just a very um, speculative mindset. I mean, look, I think to your point about the response to the pandemic, I mean, whether it's the the fiscal policy, the public health policy, the social consequences, I mean, the one thing that I keep coming back to, my, kind of my stock answer, anytime somebody wants to talk about the pandemic, is I just shrug and say, I'm surprised it wasn't worse. I mean, that, that short sentence, I'm surprised it wasn't worse, kind of sums up absolutely everything I have to say about the topic. I'll jump in and uh, share a few takes here. Um, you know, I, I remember folks on both sides of the fence on uh, kind of wanting to buy the dip or actually panicking. And, um, you know, I don't know which is first level thinking and which was second level thinking because um, it, it's just hard to say. I mean, I, I, I spoke with someone in March, mid-March, who was extremely bullish on Disney, but then ended up selling out of Disney, saying, well, you know, the the parks are going to see, going to may have to close and are going to see attendance down. And I was kind of thinking, well, that's true, but Disney isn't going to, they're not in distress. They will get through this. And if you have a long-term thesis, why would you want to sell? So, you know, that seemed kind of knee-jerk to me. But I definitely agree, Phil, that kind of all the Fed interventions have conditioned people to to buy the dip. And, you know, we're seeing that now when something's down 2%, people talk about buying the dip. So it's it's become really extreme uh, a year later. Yeah, I think that's just it. And I mean, to use Disney as an example, and I don't have a horse in the race, so uh, take this for what little it's worth. But I remember having a conversation with somebody else who did know what they were talking about. And it wasn't, it wasn't Chris, by the way, uh, who's, who's done his homework on, on Disney, but this, so this was back in March. Disney had actually taken on a lot of debt coming into the last, you know, few years. And, and sure, I mean, this is one of the world's most valuable long-term franchises, but they had a ton of commercial paper on the balance sheet. Right. And, and I just think that people that assumed that markets would stay liquid and unfrozen were maybe potentially missing it. So when I raised this issue of like, well, what is Disney going to do if the commercial paper markets close for, let's just say, all of March and April or all of the spring, you know, into the summer until we can kind of work this out? And they, that just thought had never occurred to this person. <laughs> and so, you know, and look, it's not that Disney couldn't have figured it out. I mean, look, there are plenty of sources of liquidity. I am not one of these doomsday guys that thinks, just always looking for the beast to come out and, and wreak havoc on the world. Disney would have had other avenues to access financing, but it just could have been so much more painful than it actually was, right? I could share my own story with Disney. I came into the uh, COVID crash with Disney as, I think it was just outside a top five position for me. 
And I had specifically been saying, I can't wait for the next like severe market drawdown to make Disney my biggest position. Because I truly believed in the trajectory for Disney Plus at that point and that they'd greatly exceed expectations. And I sold half in the COVID crash. I did not only not add more, I sold half my position because of exactly what you're talking about, Phil. And But John, to your point, I totally believe they'd come out the other side unscathed for the most part, but had, you know, doubts in my mind about how long I'd have to wait to see that play out. And I felt I'd have another opportunity somewhere down the line to get decently bigger in the position. And sure enough, you know, that obviously wasn't right. Um, I think one of my most immediate takeaways of, of like assessing what I did, how I did and when, like I had a very clear idea of what I did not want to own, uh, in March, I didn't know what I exactly I wanted to own out of March, except for a few names that I went what I'd call all in on. So I made sure that you know my book was positioned in such a way that these all in ideas, nothing could sway me or could leave me in a position to have to give up on them along the way. Remember the discussions around the shape of the recovery? Oh yeah. And- and I, you know, mm-hmm. no, nobody wanted to actually go with V-shaped, which I guess it ended up being, at least for the investors out there, maybe not for the real economy. I think U-shape was kind of a, a consensus or, or a smart uh, sounding opinion. I, I heard a lot of L-shaped as well. <laughs> I never really understood what that meant. I guess just kind of settle at the lower level. But that was, you know, that was kind of interesting that, and myself included, you know, people just spout off um, these predictions and these takes that are just fairly ill-informed. And again, you know, I I criticize myself there as much as anybody, but we just don't know how the macro stuff is going to turn out. That's just it. And that's what drives me nuts is that there's so many hot takes out there with Zero reason to have such a hot take, right? I mean, so I'm with you, John. I mean, nobody knows how this is all going to play out. I mean, it, it was a V-shaped recovery in a lot of ways for security investors and business investors of all stripes. But you're right. I mean, it's going to take years and decades. I mean, this will unequivocally be one of those big chapters in any sort of economic history book, right? I mean, there are so many things that we will look back on 5, 10, 20, 50 years from now where this will be the line of demarcation, right? Everything from fiscal policy and spending and deficits and inflation targets and all the things that make the world go round for the macro guys right down to individual people and homeowners, uh, labor participation, right? I mean, look, the, the labor participation rate for women is now back to when the three of us were in diapers, right? I mean, it, it's taken a 30-year hit, if not more. And you, you've seen all of these earthquakes, right, that have that have had massive, that have massive implications for the next 5, 10, 20 years. And it's kind of being, wouldn't say ignored or swept under the rug, but um, it's certainly not the focus of much attention for today. So we'll have to see. I mean, a lot of it will come out in the wash, but I don't think a lot of it's getting the attention it deserves. Right. This is one of the most profound reorganizations of society that has been experienced by a generation. And it happened overnight. Basically, one day we woke up and everything was different. And, you know, I think um, in terms of where things go from here, like a lot of people want to speak to 
what degree we go back to normal. But the better framework, if you ask me, is to think about what a new normal looks like. Like there will be elements of our life from this COVID period that persist, irrespective of what we do to try to change that. And some is for the better, some is not. Um, And there will be elements from before that, you know, reemerge in entirely new ways. Um, So, you know, I, I think there are interesting opportunities to take a crisis and not waste it and make things stronger, better, more resilient going forward. And to know that we as a society could actually, you know, adjust in the way we did. I mean, holy cow, humans are resilient. It's not easy, but it's, you know, it's something that's like uplifting in in a dark kind of way. Yeah. And I I like that, um, that thought, Ellie. And I, as you were talking to, I made a list of some things and these are things we've talked about on here too. And it'll be interesting to revisit these in coming months and years or even longer as it's necessary. So I guess the, just like my, my kind of go-to thought or phrase is I'm surprised it wasn't worse. I mean, as you talk about what could be permanent and the lasting changes that'll come from this, because there will definitely be those. It's just a matter of what they are and how they manifest themselves. So my, my thought for kind of framing those up is if it was something, a trend or an idea that was already in place and it was just accelerated by the pandemic, then that's, that's pretty real. That seems to have legs and sustainability. If it was something that made sense for some reason, right? And it was just some, you know, a a pile of kindling waiting for a spark, you know, then that also makes sense. For a lot of this other stuff, it it seems so temporary and transient. You know, I just, I'm very skeptical. So, I mean, you, you mentioned work from home. You know, look, I think it's really ironic that the same people, masters of the universe that tried to tell us everything we needed to know about everything, experts on every possible topic said, you don't understand why my 1,000 square foot apartment in Silicon Valley is worth three and a half million dollars. It's because the entire world is run from Silicon Valley and the brightest, most brilliant people in the world want to be here and have to be here and there's no other possible state of the universe. And now fast forward a few months later and it's like, no, no, I can work from Wyoming or a boat in the middle of the ocean or whatever. And it's like, well, one of those two things had to be wrong. And if you were clearly wrong before, why are you supposed to be right now? And so my thought there is that, you know, look, people have been coming together more and more and clustering more and more in in certain nodes where there's, sure, there's distributed things like work from home and, and telecommuting. And I'll talk to that in a minute. But I, if I could... If there was a way to do it that was, you know, not prohibitively expensive, I, you know, it'd be great to find a way to bet against this narrative. And it is almost all narrative that New York City or the San Francisco Bay Area or whatever are going to suffer some serious permanent decline from this. I think that will prove to be almost entirely temporary. Will there be changes? Sure, of course. But I mean, a lot of the changes are frankly healthy, right? I mean, anybody would tell you that one of the biggest drawbacks to living in either place was that it was expensive and crowded. And now it just got less expensive and less crowded. So guess what? It's attracting newer, younger, more vibrant people and businesses and institutions of all kind. And they still have all the cultural and institutional and intellectual capital that they ever did. So I just find that to be totally ridiculous. Um, and there's been plenty of data in the last few weeks and months to, to support that. But, you know, something like e-commerce, you know, that was a trend that was already well in place. And for good reason, it made lots of sense. It was just accelerated by the pandemic. That that likely sticks. Uh, you know, distributed healthcare, where instead of going into my doctor for a sinus infection, I have a 
a, you know, video conference and I get the prescription and it comes to me, I mean, that makes all the sense in the world. That stuff's going to stick, you know, and, and whether you can work from home doing that is interesting. I mean, that will definitely increase the number of people who are working from home and take away a lot of those needless commutes, the frustrating commutes, the things that don't bring people together for a good reason, right? And that was a big part of it. And that's the same way I feel about business travel, right? I mean, there was plenty of business travel that was kind of required for no good reason. And so a lot of that's going to go away. But is that going to be 1% of 2019 business travel? Or is it going to be 10%, 20%? You know, we've talked about this. Bill Gates thinks it's going to be 50%. Um, I don't think it's going to be that much, but I do think there will be some decline in business travel that's a, a lasting sign for that. And, you know, I think one other thing that could be a permanent shift is, you know, there will be people in offices again. It's, but, you know, maybe there's just, a, you know, just like we used to have a, a Saturday morning stock market that was open uh, and people would go to the office more on Saturdays. Maybe now it's you only go to the office four days a week. I think that could very, very likely take hold and take root. Yeah, I think the answer to that gets to your topic from last week, Phil, two competing thoughts at once, right, on work from home. It's not a binary question. And I think that's one of the things the world's been introduced to, that you can be productive from home. You can very much get all your stuff done. You could even do collaborative things from home. Like, look how we're doing this podcast, right? Uh, We're in... You know, we're God, Phil, you and I are in the same country. John's across the pond and none of us are close to one another, uh, physically speaking. So, you know, you could do a lot from the power. You you have a lot of power from your home, Uh, but there's a place for an office there more than just a time and a place. But there's something to be said about having that steady presence where you could go kind of, you know, have a different focus and mindset. Uh, free of distractions and yep. have certain um, kinds of like in-person conversations and and um, I don't know when you attack certain kinds of problems when you're sitting there in a room with someone it's a little different a little better than than across uh, a computer screen which is a veneer you know one level of abstraction from reality um, so there's something to be said about like a little of both like it, yep. I don't know maybe maybe we start hopefully. Uh, phrasing things more in nuanced terms in that sense. I would say that the biggest thing that I can kind of get on board with is this notion that the um, technological adoption that was already underway saw a step up, really a step change in adoption, and that, you know, that's permanent because the folks that were just going to adopt it later on learned how to adopt it uh, much earlier due to COVID and uh, they're not going to unlearn that. Um, So, you know, that I can definitely uh, get behind. I think where folks may exaggerate the impact is really on things um, that have to do with with the real world, quote unquote, where um, you know, I actually think you're going to see a big resurgence in travel. And I'm not alone on that. I think you guys probably even agree mm-hmm. that uh, there's a lot of pent-up demand out there for things like uh, leisure travel. And uh, people are not going to be more cautious about traveling uh, for for leisure because of uh, pandemic considerations once uh, this thing is over. And, uh, you know, one, one thing that kind of folks say, well, this is the death of the handshake. I actually happen to disagree with that because 
Um, I know folks who who still uh, insist on a handshake even now during a pandemic, and uh, you know I I can't but kind of give them the hand, and then later on I go and uh, disinfect my hands. But it's you know I I just don't see that going away because of a two year pandemic. So you know the the tech trend is uh, is 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 legit uh, for sure. Yeah, it's been going on for so long, right? I mean, you know, people used to live far apart and have no way to communicate. And then, you know, the written word came along and then the Gutenberg printing press and then, you know, more electronic means have taken hold in the last, you know, particularly the last few decades and certainly over the last century and change. And I, I see that, of course, that's going to continue, right? It makes all the sense in the world. But at the same time that happened, Elliot, to bring up last week, thank you. I mean, you have to hold two competing thoughts at the same time, right? I mean, there's probably plenty of people. I know, I remember even just as recently as 10 or 20 years ago, people saying, particularly after the financial crisis, you know, oh boy, this is going to be the end of big cities. You know, and it was the exact opposite, right? So I think a lot of this flight to the suburbs you're seeing in some areas is just there was a delay of kind of the natural balance where people in their 20s and 30s had maybe been sticking around longer than they otherwise wanted to. And then their hand was forced by the pandemic, right? I mean, you're seeing that in spades everywhere. So I don't think the increased number of Zoom video calls that may or may not hurt business travel a little bit is going to have any real difference in the appeal of someone that wants to live in New York City or any other big city for that matter, um, I just, it, it doesn't make any sense, right? It flies in the face of everything we've learned about humans and business and progress for the last couple of millennia. Yeah, I think what you're saying is exactly right. Like I, I, I strongly believe people are moving out of the cities and it's what you're saying, it's generational forces that were kind of pent up. Just knowing anecdotally from people, I know like I live in the you know burbs of New York City, um, so from people I know, both here where I live and people that are friends who moved to other places near me, but um, the primary forces, they overstayed their welcome because they loved New York City, stayed tight in a space even after they had kids and didn't feel right. tight because the city had a lot to offer. But once you end up in a situation where you feel like the walls are caving in around you, um, you think a little different about the amount of space that you do or don't have there. And then, you know, on the technology point, I think that's right on. And I, I do think there are a lot of people who are having a hard time holding two competing ideas. And I think PayPal is a great example of all of this because on a high level, you know, they've been pretty explicit about how the biggest cohorts of newly onboarded customers are by and large older than their customers who had been coming on before. Um, there are people who had resisted technology for whether it was inability to, you know, truly harness it or unwillingness, whatever it may be, that now were forced to use technology for things they needed and wanted. Um, so that led to a lot of people coming to PayPal. And, you know, then right now the market's treating them as one of these COVID winners and sell it, sell it all the way off because, you know, when everything reopens, you're not going to do e-com anymore. Meanwhile, you know, my biggest concern with PayPal, if you go back a year ago, was that 10 plus percent of their revenue came from the travel vertical. And, you know, to the extent that travel comes back, especially consumer, not business travel, um, they are uh, one of the disproportionate, disproportionate beneficiaries of it because it's high ticket uh, stuff that people tend to book from their computers. 
Um, so I feel like there's not a lot of nuance when, when people are kind of trying to tackle some of these big questions about what does or does not happen from here. Um, so I, I do think we're at one of those junctures that will create an interesting opportunity because of that, because everything's either, you know, it's, it's a lot of first level thinking in this market for the last year. I agree. And that that's one. So that's where I'm for a very rare instance, willing to stick out my neck a little bit with some investment advice. You know how much I hate anything that even smells like investment advice. But the one unequivocal thing I will say is given how speculative the market's been and how easy it's been, easy in air quotes recently, um, my my strong investment advice would be to just lower expectations. And and that means who knows for this year, but anybody that should be saving and investing with a five or 10 year horizon would probably be smart to lower expectations because everything that's happened in the last year, literally everything that's happened in the last year is not normal and it's not going to repeat. And if you look at some of the numbers and extrapolate them into the future, it's it's not going to continue. And, and my strong belief, and I think there's plenty of reasons for it, is that uh, you know some of the returns you've seen, not just last year, but with last year lumped in on a trailing three, five, and 10-year basis is not normal and not going to repeat. So I think everybody would be well-suited to lowering expectations. The other prediction I'm willing to make that's going to be hard to quantify or defend is just that all the speculation that's happening right now will, that's come out as this bizarre, unanticipated consequence of COVID, whether or not it's directly tied to COVID, it certainly joined at the hip, that that'll end poorly. I mean, just the anecdotal evidence is overwhelming. I mean, I saw just this morning in the month of, uh, let's see, I don't know if it was February or March to date. It looks like it was February. So in February of 2021, there were 1.9 trillion transactions in the OTC markets, the over-the-counter markets in the US. That was up 20x over last year. Right. And they call it penny stocks. And I hate that term because there's very legitimate companies that trade over the counter and, and penny stocks has a negative connotation for good reason. But when you see something explode from, you know, under a billion transactions in February of 20 to almost two trillion transactions, um, you know, in the following year and you see all the nonsense going on in all the various asset classes. And, you know, I actually was uh, playing golf with a friend of mine who runs a fund last week. And the two guys we got paired up with said they worked for a construction company and they weren't obviously investors by any stretch. But they spent, as soon as they heard us, overheard us talking, they spent basically the entire round, every possible opportunity. Hey, which crypto should we own? Hey, I own Snowflake and all these SPACs and I own all this other stuff. What should I do with it? What should I buy next? You know, I mean, they just couldn't stop. I mean, we kept very politely trying to <laughs> deflect the conversation. It was all they wanted to talk about, right? And I mean, this is, it's just crazy and it's not going to last forever. And I have a feeling if we were to revisit this conversation a year from now, we'd probably be having a different different tenor to the conversation. Yeah, I, I guess I would just say, you know, Phil, as you were talking about that, it really reminded me of a thought I had on how the policymakers responded to the crisis. And yeah, the Fed prevented the worst, but they're really using very blunt instruments uh, to deal with this. I mean, um, you know, well, first of all, a pandemic is solved through vaccines. And, uh, you know, kudos to the scientists globally who managed to come up with vaccines in such a fast uh, period time frame. And yet now the problem is getting them to people. I mean, it, it, it's literally taking 
almost longer to get people vaccinated than than it took to develop the vaccine. That's ridiculous. Um, you know, but the Fed definitely is working with very blunt tools, especially in this kind of a situation that's not like the financial crisis of 2008. Um, so, you know, I think that has a lot to do with some of the excesses that we're seeing. Yeah, I agree. And look, I'm not a Fed hater. I'm not even much of a Fed watcher, but uh, you're right. They have blunt tools. They're doing what they can. I don't have any super sharp criticisms of a lot of their behavior and a lot of what they've done, but it certainly comes with consequences. And uh, that's what concerns me, I guess, is I think there's a huge chunk of the population out there who doesn't even bother to consider those consequences. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Like, that's one of those behaviors. Once uh, the real world opens up, does that just stop on a dime? Or are people conditioned and trained to kind of, uh, you know, there's there's the dopamine, dopamine reaction to it. So hopefully that's not the case, but, you know, that people are conditioned and trained to keep going this way with markets. Um, and I don't know, it, it is tough, right? When you're in the seat of the Fed, you have blunt instruments, at the same time, you're facing economic calamity like we've never experienced. Um, and so, you know, which is the lesser of evils in some way is, is the choice you got to make. Yeah, it's funny because like, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, it can't go on for forever. I mean, it could go on for a lot longer than you'd think. But I, I, I've been posing this question to anybody that will take it, which is that, you know, show me a business that is a clear COVID or pandemic winner and I'll show you a business that should be on the other side of that that is also believed to be a COVID or pandemic where it's like Lake Wobegon, right? We've talked about it. There's just no, it's almost like everybody's getting their cake and and being able to eat it too. And and that's really strange to me. I mean, you mentioned earlier Live Nation making all-time new highs. And, um, you know, I think part of that today was that even a state like New York said you could have 20% capacity. You had to show proof of vaccine, I think, or a negative test. Um, so it's not like we're ripping all the restrictions down right at once. But look, I mean, if, if that's true and people want to take vacations and people want to go out to dinner more and people are going to have to actually start going to their job more often or whatever. I mean, there there have to be trade-offs here, right? I mean, it's just bizarre how everybody thinks, um, you know, we're going so to have. An interesting everything. exercise is scraping the market for stocks that we're neither COVID beneficiaries nor COVID losers. And there are some interesting that? companies that fall through the cracks. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, my my impression of it was that they would be just kind of the opposite of what I described earlier, right? Companies that were already dead or walking zombies that are just continuing that death spiral. Is that not the case? I'll leave it as a puzzle, but there are some ones that fit none of the above. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. All right. Well, I think. Oh, sorry. Oh no, I, I, we could leave it at that. <laughs> okay, I didn't mean to cut you off, um, but Phil, uh, let's move on to your a little bit lighter topic for uh, the week. Well, I thought this week uh, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm having a little bit of spring fever, and I thought I'd take a little bit of a break to talk about something a little lighter and more fun than some of the usual topics. So. But it is something that I think is is very legitimate and valid and helpful. And that's the idea of having a game or a hobby or something fun that you do that can also be at least tangentially helpful to investing. So I think 
everybody has obviously things that they like to do outside of their their day-to-day role or their job. Uh, but I think it's really fun. It can be really useful to have things that that bring you together with other smart people and can make your brain engaged in a positive way um, rather than just sort of mindlessly scrolling social media or watching something that's not all that great or whatever. I mean, these are these are kind of good things that uh, that can move you forward in a positive direction. And I think it's interesting when you look around at, at basically anybody you'd care to admire, right? So if you took a list of the top 10 people that, that you've either read about or met in real life that you admire in some way, I would bet pretty strongly that nine of 10 or if not 10 of 10 of those people would have some sort of deep abiding interest in a totally unrelated hobby or project, uh, right? Whether it's, you know, some sort of side hustle they have that's actually a business or just an interest in puzzle and games and things that they find really interesting. So the list of things I came up with that are personally interesting to me that have, you know, some sort of direct interest um, is sports fantasy sports. I mean, it, it does take on a little bit of gambling in that regard when you when you get into fantasy sports. I don't gamble outright on things, but it, it there's a ton of overlap between investment principles and the way businesses are run in the sports world and the way investors make decisions. And it's absolutely fascinating. Poker is an obvious one, right? I mean, there's a ton of people in, in the investment world that play poker um, on the side and for fun. And the, the you know, the parallels are obvious. Chess, Mahjong, Bridge, obviously Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, two of the world's most famous bridge players. You know, Bridge is an interesting game. I've only gotten to about, you know, the 2% level of proficiency on a scale of one to 100, but it is a fascinating game. And, you know, no less an authority than Warren Buffett has said that he can't think of a single better exercise uh, for developing certain thinking skills than the game of Bridge. So that, that says a lot certain little random one-off games. I mean, there's so many things out there, you know, instead of just mindlessly scrolling your phone, there's so many good apps and games on there. You know, some of my favorites are Ken Ken, uh, Lumosity has a bunch of good games on it. Sporkle, better as a website. Um, the Spelling Bee and Scrabble stuff that are out there are really, really good. And another one that I'm totally addicted to, maybe a little less relevant is, is crossword puzzles. Um, I think it's just a fascinating exercise. I mean, I think as with some of the other ones, you, you're incorporating a lot of the things that you do on a day-to-day basis as an investor. You're making decisions under uncertainty. You're making some sort of analytical inference or, or reasoning. Modeling and forecasting, I think, is probably the, the most fun part of, of sports and sports analytics um, and, and the allocation of scarce resources, right? I mean, the, the fundamental problem of economics is right at the heart of all of these. And then just the mental flexibility. I mean, I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but you know, writing something in ink versus writing something in pencil, so to speak, is a really powerful um, mental model to have, right? As to how sure you really are about something and, 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 and to commit to it, right? So when I write something down, I mean, or, or type something in, it's really hard to switch my mind around once I've actually taken that step versus if I'm just thinking about it. And so it's been really helpful to me to kind of make that leap into business and investing too. So I'll leave it at that. What do you guys uh, have on your list of little fun games or hobbies that you like to pursue that you find at least, uh, if not positive, at least not a a net negative, like watching reality TV or something? Sure. Yeah. I'll start with a plug for a forthcoming special edition of a one-on-one conversation with Evan Tyndall, who started as a professional poker player. I really like poker in general. I think it's great. There's like both a quantitative and a qualitative or behavioral element to it. Um, So it involves like knowing yourself and being able to kind of probabilistically assess your your chances at any given point in time. 
I love fantasy baseball. Um, you know, pretty excited for draft season. We basically took a hiatus last year and I missed that a lot. Uh, but I've had the same league uh, up and running for 13 years with some of my childhood friends. Um, and, you know, it's, it, it's great fun. We do a salary cap auction draft, which I find to be a good kind of challenge in portfolio management. You know, some people take what I'd call or what's called the studs and duds approach, where you kind of bet big on a couple anchor players and then go for a lot of optionality, or do you go for balance, right? And everything in between. Um, in normal times, I mean, I played my best adult hockey league game the night before that uh, March 9th crash. So, uh, man, I missed it. That was the last game. I think I brought extra tenacity to the rink that night because I knew the futures were puking and I just had this suspicion. Um, you know, and I told everyone in the locker room, I'll see you in, in a month. Um, and they thought I was ridiculous for even thinking we'd have a month off. Little did we know, right. A year later, I still haven't played. Um, I love swimming. I typically in normal times would swim once or twice a week. One of the things I love about it, I mean, obviously it's a great exercise, but I literally can't look at my phone, even if I want to. Um, so you end up with like great mental clarity coming out of it. Um, skiing as well, I think is one of those physical endeavors where it's, a, you know, there's a degree of self-awareness. Um, the most fun you could have in skiing is pushing yourself to your boundary, but not over it. So you have to know your boundary and find ways to get as close as possible to that asymptote. And I think it's cool as hell because of that. Um, and then I really like music, uh, especially improvisational music. Now I'm not a gifted musician. Uh, I am not a musician. Sorry. <laughs> I'll be blunt on that. Um, I really enjoy listening to music. I, I, I like listening to experimental music. I like hearing the musicians talk about taking risks uh, and chances and, and hearing those risks and chances actually play out and, you know, experiencing some of the magic that comes with that. So those are a few things for me. Well, I'll jump in. I, I think one of my pastimes is Twitter. <laughs> <That's> the, <laughs> me too. Me too. That's that's definitely where I share, uh, you know, my first level thinking a lot of the time. <laughs> Maybe not the smartest thing to do, but I've started actually parking some tweets in draft folder and uh, very few have made it out of the drafts folder. So that just shows uh, that that was a good idea to consider. Um, and other than that, I, I enjoy uh, the occasional game on chess.com. Um, it's, a, it's a really well-designed app and a huge community, so you can always play against uh, folks at your own level. Uh, and one thing that just uh, became super clear for me playing chess um, is just the power of focus and concentration. Because if I'm even a tiny bit distracted, I just make the biggest blunders uh, you could imagine. And, uh, you know, in, in many other tasks, you wouldn't really notice uh, how uh, a lack of concentration impacts your performance. Uh, it wouldn't be as clear. Uh, but the chess.com uh, app definitely makes that uh, very, very clear. And I think it applies uh, broadly. Um, you know, other than that, I'm really afraid of uh, trying any video games because growing up, I was uh, very much addicted to Sid Meier's Civilization. And you could almost not peel me off of that. Uh, so I'll kind of stay away from uh, video games. 
I had to stop playing that game because it's so damn good and so addicting. Do you guys have uh, Animal Crossing on the Nintendo Switch? It's kind of this this generation's version of that. The kids are, it's pretty addicting. Early COVID, I played that a little bit. I called it diligence at the time because I was working hard on Nintendo. I had to yeah. similarly put that down and say no more. Yep. No, it can be tough. But that's one of the things that I do like about some of these other things is, to your point, John, you have to kind of refocus your brain in a different direction. And it's not going to be real helpful if you're trying to multitask, right? I mean, multitasking is great in a lot of ways, but it's very easily proven that it's detrimental to your ability to perform any sort of cognitive tasks. And so whether it's, uh, you know, poker or chess or anything else, you know, it's generally beneficial to have a little bit of focus. That's one of the things I've been actually trying to teach my kids. A lot of people are familiar with Sudoku, which is a fun little harmless puzzle. There's a there's a slightly different version of it called Ken Ken, which is basically just Sudoku with arithmetic. And it's really obviously not very complicated. But if you get to one of the bigger size puzzles or one of the little harder size puzzles, it will take you a while to figure it out to do all the steps required. And if you're not paying attention, it's relatively easy to screw it up and make a very simple arithmetic mistake. And it's really frustrating to have wasted all that time and then get to the very end and realize you made a dumb error somewhere. So it's a good way to teach that kind of focus and attention, which I think is really crucial because I've seen a lot of dumb mistakes in the business world. You mentioned uh, skiing, Elliot. I mean, one of the all-time ones was, I think it was Park City, right? Utah, where the inexplicably somehow somebody just forgot to pay attention and, and renew the lease. They had a 40 or a 50-year lease on the on the uh, forest land that uh, I think the government was leasing to them. And, you know, they had until midnight on a certain day to file to renew the lease for another few decades and somebody forgot to do it. And uh, not just anyone, the heirs of Lucadia, Ian Cummings' son. Yeah, right. So, I mean, it was, I didn't want to name names, but. Sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, look, it's just, it's very easy to make mistakes like that. I sent around an article of, on Twitter, I think, actually speaking of uh, a few months ago where um, the agent of an NBA player actually forgot to uh, fax in the contract to the team. It was the, N- the NBA's Miami Heat. And because of that, the guy basically lost out on a few million dollars. And so to the agent's credit, he actually uh, ate it personally and said, I'll pay you back over the next 20 or 30 years. And he just did. So it was actually a very, very good story. But anyway, it just gets back to the point that in this day and age, especially, it seems like it's more easy than not to be distracted. And if you take a few minutes, you know, maybe first thing in your morning or over lunch or at the end of the day or whatever to do a puzzle or play a game that requires you to just really think about that and focus on that, it's really helped me kind of keep a clear, even head in other areas. Yeah, well, so I know we're both fantasy baseball fans, right? I mean, that's something. Oh, yeah. I have a draft tonight, actually. Yeah. Tonight. So is this a keeper league or is this a... Uh... No, this is actually a 20-year, 21 years now um, with a bunch of my old friends. And so it's an annual redraft league. It's a snake league, not a, not a salary cap league. And uh, we've tweaked the format just a little bit. I mean, again... The things that are going to change, I mean, it's funny how much things have changed. The scoring categories have not changed, obviously, in several decades since the beginnings of rotisserie baseball. But now with the way that kind of Moneyball money 2.0 or 3.0 has changed so much, I mean, there's really no point in having the category of wins for a pitcher anymore or even for saves 
for a pitcher anymore. They're just becoming increasingly irrelevant. They've always been very arbitrary and, and hard to pin down. But you know, convincing my league mates to take the plunge on this and go all in on you know replacing those two categories is really hard. I mean, it's kind of like convincing some old line value investor types to pay up for a quality company, right? It's they just they're very stuck in their ways. But uh it's a it's so a if, fun exercise. I mean, like you said, it's as close to investing in portfolio management as anything I've ever found. That's the truth. You know, it's kind of funny. My league, we went to quality starts in 2019. We we pitched wins, yeah. but saves plus holds was voted down. So we're still stuck with just saves. Yeah, we voted down saves plus holds this year too, but I think next year we'll see how this year goes, right? With how pitchers are, are handled, but I think it's gonna be really hard to stick with either wins or saves um, next year. I mean, again, I would probably be more than happy to immediately just go to innings pitched and saves plus holds, but um, it's going to be tough. Innings pitched is an interesting one, though, because in some ways it creates a redundancy with like Ks, which is a counting stat, right? Sure. But um, I mean, again, you're, you, you would have an ability then to just say one of this pitcher's skills is the ability to stay in the game, right? And yep. to get outs and to move forward. And so that's that was kind of one of the things that was always tough about wins was it was well, kind of Well, quality starts gets you there, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it does. No, but again, I actually think that the, one of the problems with quality starts will be that, this is just my guess and my opinion, is that if you were to fast forward at least a few more years, you'll have almost nobody, or not nobody, but you'll have maybe two dozen three dozen pitchers at most that will even be considered for a quality start, right? Because you're just going to get down to these multi-inning specialists where you're going to have pitchers that only go two or three innings at a time, and that'll allow them to still pitch two times a week, more or less. And, and some of the early evidence is that it's better on the wear and tear from the, particularly for the younger pitchers in terms of their, you know, elbows and, and shoulders. And so you might just get to a world where you have openers, middle guys and end game guys, and there's just no such thing as a starting pitcher anymore. Now there will still be some, but it's going to be really hard for fantasy league purposes, right? Yeah. The raise opener model is an interesting one. Like there's a solid, uh, rationale behind having, just a really good one inning specialist to knock out the three best hitters of the opposing right. team and not have to, you know, Absolutely. surrender runs early in a game. And, and then, even the best starting pitchers out there rarely, at least early in their careers, rarely make it through the lineup a third time anyway. Or if they do, I mean, the splits between their success the first time through the lineup and the second time through the lineup can be close, but it usually is a little bit of a degradation. Then the third time through the lineup, they often fall apart. So why not just remove that from the equation altogether? So Phil, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question that I'm going to, yeah, I think it's a question we're all asking about the stock market, but ask it in fantasy baseball terms. How much do you wait? Okay. What happened last year to a given player? Some of those players who kind of really flamed out in that shortened season. And some of those players who like truly shown, you know, how much weight do you give to that versus what you believed about them coming into 2020? Yeah, it's fascinating. So I don't know if you read this stuff, but Ron Chandler is kind of the fantasy version of Bill James, right? He's kind of the the godfather of analytics in some ways. And his essay this year kind of was focused on exactly that, which is what on earth do we do about 2020 numbers? How do we feed them into our models and how do we use them to incorporate to incorporate them to make projections for 2021? 
And the responses were kind of all over the map. He, he put together his own thoughts and he also pulled a lot of experts. And it was kind of a split between these are valid numbers. They, needed to be tr- they need to be treated as such. These are way too short of a sample size. They need to be regressed even more heavily than they would normally be. And then a combination of they're valid, but put them into a better context. So take the second half of 2019 plus the 60 games from 2020 and make that kind of a, a, a hybrid model, so to speak, of, of how to forecast it. And look, I mean, the problem I have with that is that nobody really knows, right? I mean, I think you're going to see all kinds of weird stuff come out of the pandemic, right? I mean, one of the big ones is probably going to be more soft tissue, soft tissue injuries because players that had to start and stop last year never really got into their, their peak fitness. Um, now having to start back up and go right back into 162 games, I mean, training, nutrition, sports science is all way better than it used to be, but that's really hard, right? I mean, you see this all the time in other sports when you make the jump from one level to the next. It's sort of like going from, you know, high school to the professional level in terms of the demands on your body to put yourself through that long of a season. So I think one thing I'm extra worried about this year is just the injury uh, risk players that have a propensity for injuries and even some that don't, I think it's just going to be a huge issue. And then, yeah, I mean, I would just be very wary about over extrapolating for sure. 2020, I'm not ignoring it by any stretch. I mean, development and progress is not linear and it's going to, it's going to have some weird effects, right? There's going to be some players that are going to just not perform as you would even remotely expect this year, but that's the nature of the beast, right? I hope no one in my fantasy league listens this far, though I hope you all listen to the podcast. Um, What I'm thinking so far is that exactly what you said, like you, I think you hit the nail on the head talking about development and uh, the injuries and, um, all these issues, I'm leaning toward um, giving good weight to breakouts of people with pedigree and or that showed signs of it uh, emerging in 2019 and giving a little bit of a second chance to people who last year just really didn't have their stuff together and way underperformed expectations. Um, and obviously last year in, in our like hybrid season, I had the first pick overall and picked Christian Yelich and that didn't work out very well. Um, but like those rare talents that didn't have great years, I'm willing to believe, uh, things were just different, harder to get into the right physical shape, the right mental shape. Cause baseball, I think is, you know, one of those incredibly mental games. Um, but I also feel like I speak about my portfolio of stocks in the exact same way. Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, like, I think another surprise effect could be both to the positive and the negative. Like you said, we talked about the negative a little bit. So guys got one year older, uh, maybe have some some conditioning issues or something that's going to be problematic on that end, didn't have a chance to get back into peak fitness. But then on the positive side, you know, for somebody that's a little bit flying under the radar and has had months and months and months of uninterrupted time to train and tinker and find something new, whether it's, uh, you know, a component of their swing or whether it's a pitcher's mechanics or whatever, you're going to have all sorts of crazy stuff going on there where somebody has figured something out in their basement, so to speak, and can now unveil it for the first time. It's going to be really interesting to watch. Yeah, I'm pretty excited for that. I'm excited to see people get back on the field and have a full season to show what may or may not have uh, kind of emerged over the last uh, really two years. Absolutely. 
Well, I wish I had something to contribute, but that this was over my head. I'm more of a European football guy, so if you guys have any well, questions look, about that, <laughs> let me know. Phil can no, hang with me there. Yeah, look, I, I will tell you that I think uh, football or American soccer is probably the most exciting sport, in my opinion, in terms of the possibilities that are still out there for analytics, because baseball is probably, and there's a reason why baseball was probably first, right? It's through the three true outcomes and the measurability of things and the discrete stop-start action of baseball just makes it inherently easier to monitor. And it's taken longer for soccer to catch up because it's bigger, it's more dynamic. There's 11 people interacting in a constantly fluid motion. It's more like the natural chaos of physics or something, and it's just harder to pin it down. And I think that's why it leaves it more open to uh, you know, the future for for analytics and data analysis and all that sorts of thing, all that sort of thing, and I think it's you know it's the world's most global sport. So um, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how that all plays out. I mean, you know, I think one of the the things you're going to see most directly is is the the finance side of it, right? I mean, it's amazing to me how many of the world's wealthiest uh, clubs in all the sports, but soccer in particular, took advantage of or suffered from the pandemic, right? With the the horrible 2020 that was. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how those ramifications play out over the next few years. It was definitely a tough year for any uh, team that relies much on uh, ticket sales. Uh, Even some- Barcelona, though, I mean, they had a huge problem <laughs> or still have a huge problem. Right? It's, it's, you know, if you didn't have kind of the TV contract like the EPL or a few others, I mean, it's going to be going to be tough for a lot of these clubs and you know now we're going into a really weird period where we have a world cup next year that's in the fall going into the winter i mean it's just bizarre how that's going to wreak havoc on people's seasons next year because this year isn't going to look totally normal and then next year is going to look totally weird too so you're going to have three straight years that are going to be basically total chaos yeah well the thing that's a little bit different with european football uh versus i think some of the american leagues is there are no salary caps as such. Um, there is FIFA has this notion of financial fair play, but it's very loosely defined. And so you've had uh, clubs really pay up a lot of money for uh, players like Messi and Neymar and Mbappe. And uh, when a pandemic hits, uh, it's it, you know finances can get pretty tough. Yeah, no, I I agree, and it's. You know, it's almost a willingness to spend, right? Which Russian oligarch or which sovereign wealth fund can come in and put the most money into the club, right? It's gonna be, it's gonna be really interesting. I could relate as a Mets fan because Madoff couldn't take down the Wilpons, <laughs> but COVID finally got them to sell to Steve Cohen. So maybe, maybe the purse <laughs> opens up a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Baseball's a lot closer in their their spending regime. That's true. Right, a luxury tax in contrast to salary cap. So it's really about yeah. willingness, yeah. just as you said, That's with right. soccer or football. Yeah, well, as we uh, wrap it up, I'll just mention, since this is the uh, in- intelligent investing podcast in a way, and uh, folks might be looking for some uh, names to to dig into, um, some of the uh, European football clubs are actually publicly traded, like Manchester United, uh, in the UK, Juventus in Italy, uh, Olympic Lyonnais in France, uh, Borussia Dortmund in Germany, and um, Ajax in the Netherlands. And obviously the stocks uh, got hit pretty hard uh, in the pandemic, haven't really recovered uh, very much. 
Um, so, you know, I'm not recommending them, but uh, might be some something for folks to, uh, you know, do some research on. And John, we could add a baseball name to that with a John Malone connection. Uh, the Atlanta Braves trade publicly under the ticker B-A-T-R-A, Batra. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. I've looked at a lot of those businesses and, um, you know, they don't make a lot of cash earnings, that's for sure, but they certainly command a lot of value and the value's gone up a lot. I mean, no no less an authority than Jerry Jones was quoted somewhere today as saying that the only time I've ever been involved with something good, you know, he bought the Dallas Cowboys I don't know, whatever it was, 30 or 40 years ago now, he thought he wildly overpaid and his investments probably returned 20, 30, 50x or something like that over the decades. It's done very well. <laughs> so, Way better than you know, oil wildcatting. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Or or like, you know, Mark Lazary, you know, buying the Milwaukee Bucks or the investor group led by LaCobb and buying the Golden State Warriors. I mean, they all looked like stupid purchase prices when they were made. And then within a matter of about five years, it was like, wow, that was a once in a lifetime opportunity. <laughs> so, well, Balmer yeah, put a billion know. dollars into Twitter and a billion into the Clippers. And <laughs> for him, at yep. least the Clippers worked out better. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I don't have an opinion either on uh, the publicly traded you know, powerhouses. Although I will say, John, it's pretty nice to see both Borussia Dortmund particularly and now Juventus having some really stellar world-class American talent for the first time, right? With some real money behind them. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the Americans are coming for sure. I mean... Uh, it's the first time in my lifetime there's ever been legitimate, at least attacking talent on the field that was young and you look at some of the americans in europe that are all you know starting in champions leagues game champion leagues games that are now you know i think what the oldest might be 25 years old like they're all young and they're all pretty impressive yeah christian pulisic kind of started that uh, trend and at he Borussia was a, dortmund yeah right yeah. and the transfer there was enormous and now Gio reina's taken over the throne and weston mm -hmm. mckinney just transferred to juventus and uh there's big, big money behind those transfers. I mean, that's an interesting investment strategy. You mentioned Ajax, right? I mean, they can't really compete in the Champions League at the senior division like they used to, and but their academy is still one of the best in the world, and they've made a fortune for themselves, at least relatively speaking, in, in the absence of a TV contract that would measure up to the other big leagues by developing world-class talent and then, you know, transferring them off when they become, you know, 22, 23 years old. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting kind of to think about how you would value a club that isn't really cash flowing a ton from operations. Let's say Borussia Dortmund isn't cash flowing. And actually right now, obviously, uh, it's it's an especially tough time. But I think generally they're, they're somewhat cash poor. At the same time, um, you know, Borussia is a top two club in Germany and one of the most famous clubs in, in Europe. Um it owns its own stadium, which is actually the largest uh, covered stadium in uh, Europe. In Europe for soccer, it uh, seats eighty thousand people, and um, you know, rabid fan base. And uh, you know, the market cap is about five hundred million for a club like that, where they got players like uh, Gio Reyna, um, like uh, Irving uh, Erling Holland who might uh, get a, you know, multi-hundred million dollar transfer at some point. You know, how do you look at, um, you know, those kinds of assets and uh, how do you value a club like this, I think is really fascinating. 
or how do you value those players even? I mean, Elliot and I were talking about this a little bit offline. There's a burgeoning market in other parts of the world, particularly in, in the U.S., where you can buy the future income stream of a player. So Fernando Tatis is one of the brighter stars in Major League Baseball now. I think he's, what, 21, 22 years old. His, if you're really old like me, you remember his dad was actually a very good Major League player for a while. But for whatever reason, when he was 17 or 18 and slogging away in minor league baseball, um, he'd just been signed um, as a teenager. He was in single A. And, you know, look, even with a major league pedigree like he had, the success rate for making it out of the minors and becoming a, a bona fide big leaguer, still pretty low. He sold... They haven't released the details of the contract, but it's basically a private equity fund that takes somewhere between a 2 and a 12% stake in your future earnings to make your life basically tolerable while you're slugging it out in the minor leagues, making you know $5,000 a year, $10,000 a year, $50,000 a year at the most. Um, and so he just, uh, over the winter, signed a $340 million contract and... Um, you know, it worked out pretty well for his venture capital backers there. And, and you know, they made something like 75 individual bets. Uh, be interesting to see. I don't know what the portfolio payoff is going to look like on some of those, but you don't need too many to pay off if you get some big ones like that. It's pretty interesting, like almost a form of insurance, but as equity uh, that could be bid on in auction-like form. And we were talking about, I, th- I think we got on that path thinking about the old Vernon Davis uh, Fantex, literally IPO, where he sold 10% yep. of his lifetime earning stream in an IPO. I can't remember if it was, I, I, they had pulled it at first and then they you know, did it a year after they had initially planned on it. But you know, that was pretty interesting. He obviously, you know, I thought it was a freak of nature as a talent and never truly panned out. I mean, he had a pretty long career, but, you know, was never a pro bowler year in, year out. I feel like in a sport like football in particular, something like that could be very interesting for, for players. Also fun for fans, though, with the investment culture and zeitgeist of the time, it could be kind of wild. Yeah, I think insurance is the right framework from the player's perspective, right? Because you've you've long been able to insure against injury, right? I mean, there's long been a market for, you know, if you have a blown ACL or something, you can insure against that in advance. Uh, but this is, a, you know, potentially a, a more constructive way to do that and just say, yeah, I'm willing to securitize a future chunk of my revenue for an upfront payment because I think even if the NPV works against me or that it works in favor of the investor, I'm just willing to take that worst case scenario off the table because for all the, you know, cent of millionaire athletes or even billionaire athletes that we hear about, there's many, many more who thought they were going to be the next LeBron James or Leo Messi or whoever that never even made it and got a chance and didn't have any money to show for it. So... Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I was working in sports before I got into investing. And one of the things that was at the intersection of sports and finance that I was working on was trying to craft annuities uh, geared toward the life cycle of players by sport. Um, And, you know, I never truly panned out because the person I was working for was a little bonkers. And that'll be a fun story to tell one day. But um, long story short, I mean, I think there's something to be said about the risk that athletes take, um, the skew of that risk and what happens if, you know, like it's not truly free market capitalism for these athletes. Players go from 
amateur to professional status and are subject to a collective bargaining agreement that they've never sat at the bench for. And the entire uh, CBAs are geared toward protecting the interests of veteran in contrast to, you know, rookie and younger players. And the, um, you know, it's actually causing problems for teams now because you're seeing uh, baseball players are under control for so long that at the point in which they hit the open market, teams have no choice but to pay way too much in both annualized value and duration. And so like younger players get hosed along the way. You know, there's something that's got to give in the total balance between the risk players take, who gets compensated for what. Um, you know, it, it doesn't just disproportionately fall on on young players anymore. Yeah, it's funny too. I mean, this it does cut both ways though. I mean, I was just reading about, I hate to bring this up, you mentioned the Mets earlier, so I apologize, but I'm sure you're familiar with the Bobby Bonilla. Of course, <laughs> every year work. I know when it's Bobby Bonilla Day. It's Bobby Bonilla Day. So yeah, I, I think it was, I don't know if this is true or not, but the Wilpons were willing to do this. They allowed him to spread out his, uh, what would have been about $6 million in an upfront, was it a signing bonus or something, um, where they allowed him to spread it out through 2035 at an 8% interest rate? because they assumed they could earn more than that with Madoff. Is that right? Mm -hmm. It was the buyout of his contract, though. I don't think it was the signing bonus itself. Yeah, when they had... uh, But it was cash. It was cash he was owed at the time, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. At that time. And he was smart enough to say, huh, 8% (laughs) sounds like a lot of... Guaranteed. Three three decades guaranteed. Yeah, so I'm going to go ahead and take that. It's worked out pretty well for him. Not a bad deal. And like I no. said, the Madoffs couldn't do in the uh, Will Ponds, but you know, COVID yeah. was a different beast. Yeah, it's crazy. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there. Uh, we took a little longer than normal, but it was a fascinating discussion. Thanks uh, to both of you, Elliot and Phil. And uh, thanks everybody listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.